Welcome back to Swiftly Speaking. This is episode four. Uh, as always, I'm Paul Hudson, and this with time with me have with a uh, and this time with me even we have Kaya Thomas, who uh, now works at Calm. Previously worked at Slack. Uh, also an international speaker, doing some great talks around the world. Uh, as always, I have stacks of questions for her to ask. But this is a live stream on YouTube. We want to hear your questions as well. So, folks, if you have questions for Kaya about SwiftUI, about side projects, about push notifications, about working at big companies, now's your chance to ask in the chat channel. I'll do my best to grill Kaya and make sure we get good answers out of her. As always, I want to say thank you so much to Instabug, who sponsored my site. Uh, they have a, a SDK where there's one line of code. You can identify and fix problems in your apps. It's really, really nice. Okay, enough from that. Kaya, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm really excited to chat. Yeah, well, we've got lots to get to, like always. And uh, be mind, I, I don't get too technical, but I'm not going to get you away with light answers either. I want some it's a good meaty answers out if possible. Because <laughs> there's some good hard topics here. Things like Swift UI is a massive thing on the agenda for everyone right now, surely. Exactly. And especially with, you know, impending dub dub. 2020 online. We don't know what Swift UI 2 is going to bring us. That's I'm really looking forward to that. But it's going to be good, hopefully, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's start then by winding back the clock to WWDC 19, which was you know nine months ago as we record this thing right now. That was for surely all of us a massive revelation that all that time we'd invested in UI Kit is still valuable, but now there's a wholly new way of building software. What were your first impressions of SwiftUI? I think being there at the conference and sitting in on the sessions when they when they announced SwiftUI and when they were teaching us SwiftUI, I, my mind was blown. I think it was, I totally fell in love. I was in that honeymoon phase for sure. Mm. On that first week, I think it was just that whole new paradigm of, of thinking and developing UI. And I, I didn't expect it. I don't think most of us expected it. So it was a complete surprise, a complete joy. Now, I will say, like, the honeymoon phase doesn't last forever. But definitely <laughs> for that first for that first week, I, I was completely enamored. I, I thought it was so cool, very easy to understand in the beginning. But I think, you know, once you get deeper into it, that's when it, you really, really start to understand the challenges that come with any new library, right? The 1.0. So you said it's easy to understand. So you generally found it a click away. I got it first time, or because uh, some folks did hit a UI kit bump. I think I I was able to decouple it from UI kit. I think that's I in talking to people who have tried to ramp up with Swift UI and learn it. I think if you are still thinking with UI kit in your mind, it will be really hard to understand because you're trying to make it work just like UI kit worked and that it's not UI kit, right? It's a completely new way of, of developing. And so for me, I tried to just not even think about UI kit. Right. I was just coming with that learner's beginner's mindset. Like this is something completely new. Um, and I think when it comes to learning like the simple hello world and the, the very first views and button interactions, it was really simple and easy to learn. Definitely got way more complex once you actually get into developing a full application and the complexities that come there, navigation and animation and all these type of different things. 
that's when it definitely gets a bit more complex and it's not as easy, of course. Mm. But when I when I was first learning it, I think I came with that beginner's mindset and tried to completely separate it from UIKit. We've got a question here already from Fernando Borges Paul. Do you think UIKit will disappear completely and everything will be Swift UI? No, no. I mean, look at Swift, right? Objective C hasn't completely disappeared. Um, there are still folks using Objective C. Uh, there are still plenty of companies that have <laughs> that have legacy Objective C code. Um, and so, same thing with Swift UI. I don't think UI Kit is going anywhere. I don't think Apple goes, is going to deprecate UI Kit, you know, in the next five years or something. But I do think that they're going to heavily be putting more support into Swift UI as it develops, just like they did into the Swift and the Swift community. Uh, at the it's it's obviously clearly the direction for the future. Mm. So I do think that it's going to be the the new way of developing apps. And just like Swift, now you have apps that are completely written in Swift. Plenty of you know big companies and apps are 100% Swift. I do think in like five, six years from now, there will be plenty of, of applications and companies that are all Swift UI. Mm. Um, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. No. <laughs> I guess Swift had the advantage that from day one, it was UIKit, it was AppKit, it was WatchKit, it was SpriteKit, yeah. it was Core Graphics. It was it was everywhere from day one. They bound all their frameworks. Whereas in SwiftUI, there's no collection views, there's no text views, there's no attributed strings. There's yeah. a lot of things still missing <laughs> there. So it's kind of holding it back a little bit, yeah. obviously intentionally, but it hasn't got the same speed of adoption, presumably. Yeah, I, I think... I don't think it's going to have the same speed of adoption just because it's a completely new paradigm mm. and it is missing a lot that a lot of people need to just, you know, make their applications. And because of that, I, especially someone who's just first learning, I think it's great. You can play around with Swift UI, but if you actually are trying to, you know, launch an app to the app store and this is your first app, I wouldn't necessarily recommend just going all in with Swift UI because there's a lot of things missing that I think are really necessary for you know production production apps so I, I i agree i think that it's it's not the same as swift in that swift there was still ui kit and a lot of backings of years and years of development so it wasn't a complete turnover uh but i do think it will have similar once it gets a bit more stable like swift 3 and on mm. i do think it will have a similar adoption so you think we might see a Swift UI 3 then? Uh, change everything, break everything, learn everything from scratch again, folks. <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, I hope not, but realistic, if we're being realistic, right, we probably, we probably will. Well, I was reading about their um, continuous integration process by one of the folks who worked on SwiftUI. He's now left Apple and wrote a blog about what they were doing. And they're saying they had this massive system oh. in place so they could, they could test everything within one hour. So presumably they had a massive turnover of code ahead of time. But now, now literally hundreds of thousands of folks are using it. That's a hundred X, a thousand X, if not more, whatever they could possibly have before. Yeah. So they must be learning things so quickly right now. Like, oh, we never thought someone would do this with SwiftUI. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So potentially SwiftUI yeah. 2 this year could be a massive change as well. Oh, I, I think it will be massive. I mean, the fact that we saw even, you know, big changes when the first version of Swift UI in beta came out versus what was, was launched in, mm. you know, the, the GAX code, that was a huge difference. So I, I think that we are going to see, um, a huge difference with Swift 
to because they've been getting intake from the community and seeing how people have been trying different things. And so hopefully I'm hoping they, they, they're taking our feedback and then incorporating that in Swift UI too. Yeah. So if you were to speak to a junior developer today, not someone who worked with you at a company, but someone wants to have an indie life, and they said to you, listen, Kaya, yeah. should I learn Swift UI or UIKit? What would your advice be? Uh, my advice would be start with UIKit. Start with UIKit, understand the, you know, the kind of foundations of iOS programming, really get your foundation strong um, because jumping jumping into UIKit, the, the issue is when you come to, I mean, jumping into Swift UI, excuse me, if you come into you know, problems or mm. things that you don't understand or things that don't exist yet, um, it might be hard to actually continue because a lot of the problems are not things that, you know, us, we can solve, right? Because they either don't exist or they're a bug, yeah. et cetera. <laughs> and so, whereas with UIKit, you can have way more support from the community because if you're learning and you're coming to roadblocks, most likely most of us will be able to to help you and help you continue on and understand that problem. Um, and it will give you a better foundation so that when you do decide to learn Swift UI, um, you can always fall back to UIKit. You know, if you only you learn Swift UI and you're a junior developer, you don't have that UI kit foundation to fall back to. And the, and the great thing about Swift UI right now is you can use it with UI kit, right? Mm, you yeah. can use both. It's, it's not either or. And I think a lot of the conversation sometimes is like either or, and it doesn't have to be either or you can learn, you can learn both and you can use both. But I, I highly recommend starting out with UI kit, building the foundation and then trying to explore and experiment with Swift UI. Um, and you can always fall back to UI kit if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I think at this point we are what ten years into UIKit. I mean, it's 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 a mature framework now, to the point where you could probably yeah. paste almost any error message into Google and get some results saying here's my problem, and then further down here's how to fix it. In SwiftUI, it's a, it's a clean slate. There's no you know yeah. ancient Objective C answers to fall back on, whatever. It's a completely clean slate. So nope. <laughs> often you're the first person asking that question. Exactly. We've got a question here from Austin Conlon who says, what sharp edges stuck out to you when you started using SwiftUI more? So when you went beyond that initial sort of week or so, the honeymoon period at the end, you thought, I want to do this thing. Ooh, that's harder than I expected. Honestly, the thing I struggled with most was navigation. Um, and, and not just, you know, I think navigating from one, one view to the next is fine. But when you have deep layers of navigation, that's when, for me, it, it kind of just fell apart. Um, I experienced a lot of times either, you know, it just not working. So you're trying to, for example, I was working on where you had to basically, it was like three layers of navigation deep. So you have a list, you click on, you know, something in, in the list, it brings up another view. You're in that view, you click on something, and then it brings up another view. And a lot of times it, it just wouldn't work. Sometimes it would work. So, uh, other times it wouldn't work. Um, and that's really frustrating because most apps have, you know, several layers of navigation and, and, a, and a deep navigation stack. Yeah. And so it was really frustrating to know that that wasn't reliable. And honestly, it was one of the reasons why I, I didn't continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper into SwiftUI because if, if I can't get the basics of, you know, a, a navigation stack, then why, why should I, you know, try to continue 
to to invest there. I do think it's great for those like singular views and building out single views in, in Swift UI is really fast and and really awesome. And then you can use those with UI Kit and have the navigation be responsible in in UI Kit, which I think is a is a bit more reliable at this point. Yeah. With navigation, it's a great example of what I call Swift UI syndrome, which is you're sitting there coding some Swift UI and it's brilliant and it's perfect and it works. And you want to do one thing and you know it's one line of code in UI kit. Like you want to say, yep. get the view controller, pop to root view controller, something like that, right? And you know it's one line of code, but you can't get the view controller. You just want to say, just just somehow do this one thing and you can't do it. And you're stuck with it. And you end up then saying, oh, well, I either yep. do without this or re-architect to have to have different solutions or rip out that whole view and make it a view controller and UI kit. And it's a hard choice to make. Exactly. It is. It is a hard choice. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the frustration there. You know how you know easy it can be to write the Swift UI code. You see you know, all the snippets that's like, here, I took this you know, 600 view, line view controller and turned it into 50 lines with yeah. Swift UI. <laughs> um, and so it feels awesome. And you're like, oh, I want to do that. But then you, you hit these roadblocks. And so I, I think that's why I'm hopeful for Swift. UI too, because I think hopefully a lot of those frustrations and things that, that we've been um, having will be solved. I think Swift UI 1, the version we have right now, if I can number this thing, is the ultimate <laughs> DC framework because it, it makes for brilliant presentations. But then in practice, you hit, yep. hit these pain points and they sap a lot of the joy because there's so much joy in Swift UI. You can do some wonderful playful, yes. exciting, fun, beautiful things with it. Yep. Almost trivially. And then you hit yep. that roadblock and you're like, oh, I regret my life choices at this <laughs> point so much. <laughs> no, I, I think that's like a, a the perfect way to explain it because all of us, I think, were blown away at, at Dub Dub because the presentations, like it was just so pal. Yeah, like, it's great. you know, <laughs> one line and you're, everybody's like, ah. <laughs> and so... But in, in actuality, it isn't, it isn't as great um, as those presentations. But it is really playful and joyful. And I think that's one thing I've really appreciated from it. Like, even though it has those roadblocks and those pitfalls, it, it's so fun, honestly, to play with. And it kind of brought me back that joy of, like, when you first learned programming and you were so excited. Yep. And, you know, getting things working was just like, oh, my gosh, like, it worked. And it kind of gave me that, that same feeling. Yeah. We've got a question here from Ben Sherman, who runs, of course, the amazing NS Screencast. Uh, he asks, do you have any tips on getting to the right error message? Because often Xcode just complains about the outer scope or in some random line often, in fact, and you end up just deleting a lot of code to get to the underlying error. What was your approach to finding errors? Ooh, um, you know, before they, they, they have now some compiler improvements that fix that a little bit, um, with uh, Swift 5.2 or 5.1? Yeah, 5.2, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you would know, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's helped. But before, yeah, I, a, lot of, a lot of it was deleting things one by one, unfortunately. I did the same kind of approach. So I would, you know, delete a line, see what happens, or, you know, change small things. I think that's what, not changing a lot at once. So changing very, very incrementally. Um, to see to see what would happen. Um, at least, like you know, that it's in the scope of a, a specific closure, right? So starting out there, and then 
you know, just going slowly to, to investigate what could potentially be the problem. I, I, a lot of my error messages usually ended up uh, being some type of, um, some type of like type error. So there was something wrong with the, the object that I was trying to use because I, I didn't have it either conform correctly to, to the right um, protocols. Cause you know, with Swift UI, there are like quite a few protocols that you have to conform to like identifiable and things like that. And that have kind of strict requirements. And so a lot of the errors ended up being like that, but because the, the compiler wasn't so great at exposing those errors, it was hard to find. So I would usually, I caught on after a while that a lot of times that that was the error. And so they were type errors. And so I would usually start there and see, okay, like, are these types, you know, correct? Are they conforming to the protocol correctly? Um, and then going from there. Yeah. I think, like, they're, they're, I'd often find three kinds of errors. One is, you know, you've made a mistake, fool, here's, here's the error, right? That was good. I like those. The other one would be something like, you know, um, VStack unknown tuple thing. You're like, okay, that isn't helpful. It's pointing yep. at the wrong thing entirely. <laughs> they were the worst kind. Uh, the the middling yeah. kind that I kind of liked, actually, were the obviously wrong error messages. Like, uh, can't convert this optional int to a regular int or the other way around like that. You're, well, no, you, oh, you, yes. you can yeah. do that, Swift. I know you can do that, Swift. <laughs> you can totally do that yourself, Swift. Yep. But it's choosing not to, which, which basically it's a, it's a, a red herring, but it was an obvious red herring. Yep. Unlike the useless VStack, you know, what the heck's gone wrong somewhere else. The obvious red herrings were quite helpful because then you start doing your binary chop. Take out half the code. Wasn't that half? Yep. Take out this half of the code. Wasn't that half? Oh, it's, it's there somewhere. And you, and you get there. But as Kai yep. said... Uh, Holly Baller and uh, her colleagues at Apple on the Swift team have done mwah, amazing work on Swift 5.2. Yeah. It is, it is. I honestly think it, I should write an article saying Swift 5.2 is like the one true Swift, the Swift we should have had all this time. <laughs> it's so, so good. Your code compiles faster. It compiles smaller. It takes less yeah. memory. You get better error messages, more features, yada, yada, yada. It's just amazing. And to be fair, 5.1 had a lot of work to do. They crammed things in yeah. there galore while also shipping five uh, uh, Swift UI, so that was hard. So I kind of I forgive them for that a little bit. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't do everything all at once, right? So since then, yeah. since the early days of Swift UI, obviously you've been using it since then. We've had like nine months in at this point, and have you seen it progress much in a good direction? Is it getting better? Is it being more streamlined, or is it still quite rough like it was in those early days? Um, I think it's, it's still quite rough. Um, I think that there's, there are bugs definitely that they fixed, which have been great, but there are still, I, I think, a lot of gaps. Um, and I think some of the things that we, we had mentioned, right, that don't exist in Swift UI kit, but exist in UI kit, like collection view and those things, I think those are just kind of essential to, to basic app development. And so, um, definitely you can use, there are some great libraries out there, you know, from the community that, have kind of tried to fill these gaps but of course you know i think we all prefer like a native solution so um i think it's still rough it's still rough and, and i think hopefully swift ui2 will will be a little bit of a saving grace yeah when you see like uh steve breen's talk from wc19 about uh compositional collection views you're like oh wow it's amazing and then it's yeah. like see see this <laughs> Not for you. <laughs> and it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that was hard. <laughs> yeah. But UI kit is standing still, right? UI kit's going to carry on 
developing. They're not going to hang around and pause UI kit to fill in SwiftUI, so which presumably means this yeah. year, SwiftUI has to add in all the missing features from WW19, 18, 17, and so forth, plus anything new from WW20 yeah. in UI kit. So it's a, it's a moving target. Do you think that's actually feasible or will it take a few years to catch up? That's a really good point. Um, I do think that it will take some years to catch up because I don't think they're going to, you know, divest in UI kit. I think with WW, um 2020, there were a lot of great UI kit improvements. Like you mentioned, like the compositional um, layout for collection views and table views and, and diffable sources. And there were a lot of great UI kit improvements. And so I don't think those are, are going to be stopping at a standstill. So Swift UI might always be a little bit behind um, until they make a point to say, okay, well, we're a hundred, you know, it's at a good point. We're going to be a hundred percent investing in Swift UI, but I don't, I really don't know, you know, when that would happen. Um, I think maybe five years from now or so, but you know, that's just, that, that's just a guess. But I do think that Swift UI would be playing catch up for a couple of years. Golly. Now, of course, one of the big features of Swift UI is that it works great on iOS and works great on macOS and works great on watchOS and tvOS. Now, you've obviously done lots and lots of iOS work in the past, but has it made you tempted or inclined to try building more for macOS or watchOS or similar? It it has for, for watchOS, not as much macOS. Um, I, I haven't been as uh, enticed to, to build a Mac app. But definitely when I saw that, you know, how easily it worked with watch, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like I should build a watch app. But then I had zero ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't actually build one. Um, I think the, the idea part is, is kind of tough sometimes. Um, so I didn't actually build one. I, but I'm curious because it is so um, much simpler with, with Swift UI and because you can have that kind of build once kind of work everywhere it doesn't really work everywhere but um it's close enough that i think it would be cool to to try to build a watch app but look, the concepts are the same aren't they if you learn the idea of state published views the body property and mm. similar v stacks h stacks all those things fine you you have to still tailor your code on each platform so it looks great on mac os looks great on watch os with a digital crown or other uh, hardware specific features but the concepts, they're totally shared. So you learn those once in iOS, and you could build WatchOS if you had a, an app idea, right? Definitely. Definitely. I feel confident that I would be able to. So what's keeping you away from macOS then? Hey, it's great fun. <laughs> ah, I don't know. I um, To be honest, like I don't really use a lot of Mac apps. Uh, besides like, you know, Xcode and Safari or Google Chrome. Um, and, and so I guess it's, it's more on my side of because I don't use Mac apps that often. I, I don't, I'm not enticed to build one. Right. Um, there. Yeah. So I think that's probably what, what's really holding me back. Um, I think, you know, the Mac app community is awesome. I think there are a lot of great apps out there. I just, I'm not on, besides my being on my computer for like coding and things, I don't really use my computer um, that much. Like I will use my phone or my iPad otherwise. Um, and you know, being an iOS developer. <laughs> did, I, did Apple know this before they gave you that amazing Mac, the MacBook Pro 16 inch? You say, hey, I, I barely use my Mac, it's okay, you know? <laughs> 
Yikes! <laughs> this is this is what you get when you have live, right? There's no editing. You're getting the, the full <laughs> full unedited Kaya right my now. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I use it. I have to use my Mac for my full time job for for coding and and Xcode and everything. But when it comes to just like me, just browsing and and doing random stuff as like a regular person outside being a developer, I'm using my phone. I'm using my iPad. Um, so I think the the Mac is a great development tool and development machine, uh, and I I kind of view it like that, right? I'm I'm viewing it as a machine to develop apps and and to work on. But when I come when it comes to just like being a regular person and browsing and having fun, I'm going to be using my phone and my iPad. So I think that's why I really haven't been enticed to build a Mac app. If if maybe I I wanted to build a developer tool or things like that. I think that's where Mac apps can really be powerful. And we have seen like a lot of really cool development tools from the community um, come out. And so maybe there, if I found an issue that I was like, oh, well, maybe I can build a developer tool. Mm. I would definitely think about it. Nice. We've got a sort of a statement around the question here from uh, Manuel Carrasco Molina, AKA Stuff MC. Uh, the great thing is now when someone wants a Mac app, I'll start with a Catalyst app. And that's interesting because we now have multiple options of macOS. We could say, hey, I can I can build AppKit if you want to do the AppKit way to get the full power of macOS. Yeah. Or I could choose SwiftUI, learn once, apply anywhere, then tailor for each OS. But also, if you were like you, so like, you know, SwiftUI, Mac, eh, not too interested. But on iOS, if you build a great iOS app, you could then click that magic button, which does most of the work getting it to Catalyst. Has that tempted you? So... To, it did tempt me. Um, I actually, when when Calus came out, um, I kind of explored it for for Calm when the when the beta came out to see if we can and do it for Calm. And I had a lot of road bumps and a lot of trouble um, even trying to to get it started. Um, and I think, especially for production apps, there were just some confusing things in, in terms of how it would work with subscriptions and all this, and it, it wasn't really clear. And so, if it was a simple app and maybe not like a really big production app or a big company app definitely um would would think about it but also i think there are some things on ios that are just so different on mac um and i think they it, it seems like they've done uh, a good job pretty much translating that but so i for example i use the jira um mac app which is uh, a catalyst app i'm pretty sure they had announced that at the, the um, 2020. So I think it's a catalyst app. And you can definitely tell sometimes some subtle things that are like, this is not really a computer experience or like it shouldn't really work like this on a computer. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Controversial use computer there, Kaya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would really do a catalyst app because I, I feel that if I want to build a Mac app, I want the Mac users to have that completely Mac experience not like a half Mac, you know, half phone experience. Okay. And um, before we move on to other topics, just briefly, what do you think is the future that you'd like to see for UIKit? Ooh, um, that's a good question. I think the future of UIKit, honestly, I think is going to be making sure that it is able to because i don't think it, it needs to be eradicated 
but I really like the direction that they're moving with like the um verses and, and you know compositional layouts and things like that. I think that's a really good direction to move in. And I think in thinking about UI kit and combine and you know kind of the reactive paradigm and ways that we're moving towards as a development community, mm. I really want to see them kind of investing in how UI kit can really work well and interface with those aspects. Um, and so whether that's making sure that Swift and, and UI and UI kit really meld really well together. So investing in easily building out Swift UI views and then maybe UI kit is responsible for that navigation and um, all that aspect and really investing in making that well. But I think I definitely see a future for UI kit where it needs just interface well with everything else they have going on all the th all the new frameworks and libraries they're building and the direction they're moving into because i would hate to see that they stop investing in ui kit and and just let it fall to the wayside and don't try to m help it kind of meld with the direction we're moving to as a development community yeah well right now that there is i think a element of fear of missing out for folks who are doing UI kit thinking oh over there it's so yeah. much fun in the Swift UI land they're having so much fun uh, yeah. but UI kit I think really does have a bright future with lots more still to come because it's it's an amazing amazing framework it's super mature it can do practically everything I ever wanted in my life but they're still doing amazing <laughs> new things with it and last year was a huge huge UI kit release and hopefully this year will be the same too. So let's leave SwiftUI and UIKit there and move on to another topic because you have a excellent side project uh, called WeRead2. So it'd be helpful to tell folks a little bit about WeRead2 first. What, what, what started it? What was your goal when you first started down, you know, Xcode, new project? Yeah, so when I first started, actually, I did not start with Xcode. I started with a Word document. <laughs> there you go. And I'll kind of explain. And so Ruby 2 is a, a directory of children and young adult books written by authors of color. And the books feature main characters of color. And the reason why I kind of came up with the idea was actually from my own experience. So I'm an avid reader. I've loved reading. Um, and when I was really, really young, my parents would like go to specialty bookstores and things to make sure that the characters in the, the picture books that I was reading look like me. Um, but then once I got older and I was like responsible for finding my own books, I would kind of realize that I wasn't feel getting well represented in the books that I was reading. I didn't really find myself in those characters. And so um, it, it, you know, it affected me. And so as I got older and once I started learning how to code, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Potentially I could build some type of resource, right. That collects all of these titles that you know have you know black latino asian native american all you know all different types of characters from different backgrounds and so that young people can see themselves in, in the books that they're reading and also that people who are not from those backgrounds can be exposed to different types of people and and people of all different types of backgrounds and so that's kind of how the idea arose and when I started out, honestly, I just started searching for these type of books and listing them all in a Word document. So I didn't know, I didn't know anything about like databases or at that time. At that time, I had just learned a bit of Python. Um, I didn't even know um, iOS development yet. Wow. And so 
I started, yeah, I started learning iOS development the summer of um, 2014. And so then I, I learned iOS development. I was like, oh, this is, I can make some type of app. And so I really just, you know, went on at the time I was, you know, reading Ray Wenderlich, App Coda, um, and doing these kind of tutorials and things and trying to figure out how to make apps and how could I, you know, connect it to a database. And then I started out with Parse. So I manually took all those books that I had listed. And at the time it was about 300 that I had in that Word document and manually input them in Parse one by one. <laughs> um, and then I, I made the first version, which was really simple. It was like a table view that had two options, children, YA, and you click on children's and then it would give you uh, another table view that just listed all the <laughs> all the books. And, and that was the first version of the app that I, I launched uh, late August, 2014. What I find, well, there are many remarkable things in what you said, but one thing I particularly love about what you said is anyone can make an app for themselves. Like the apps I make, my personal apps I make for me, and I'm basically relying that there are 10,000, 50,000 folks out there who are just like me, right? You could have done that because mm -hmm. you could have said, listen, when I was 15, 16, there weren't enough people who looked like me. So I'm going to make an app for uh, black American girls who want to see themselves as characters. Mm -hmm. You could have stopped there and you didn't stop there. You carried on going, how can I make this intersectional for everybody that everyone also reads? Yeah. And that just opens up this app to, to so many more people who also felt the same way. Also thought, well, I've, there aren't many Asian Americans or whatever, or whoever happened to find your books that looked like them. And it just made the app so much more applicable to everyone. So it's really, really awesome. Yeah, and that's super important to me. I think some some people get misconstrued and think that oh, it's a black, it's a book that only has um, black characters or you know black authors, and that's not it at all. And it was specifically made to be so intersectional and so diverse because I wanted to you know highlight all of these great stories that are from all different types of cultural backgrounds. Yes. So you also mentioned, and this is fascinating that you used a Word document first. That was your first port of call. So let's talk yep. more about how you approached yep. the design and development of your side project. So step one, it sounds like you just wrote things down. Where did it go from there? Yep. Yep, so I wrote things down in a Word document and then when it came to actually thinking about, okay, the app and the design, I actually at the time used, I think it was called Phone Gap or so, yeah. and I kind of prototyped, yeah, this is, like going back, like getting refreshing my memory. And I used that to kind of prototype like web views of potentially what the app could look like. Um, and just so I can see something physical and like play around with it. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of showed it to some friends and said, oh, what do you think? And, and then I kind of wrote down all the features that would kind of be nice. And I think what it really taught me is because when I when I first started developing, I had like a long feature list, like, oh, I want to build all these features. And I got super overwhelmed because number one, I was I was a beginning developer at the time. So I didn't even know how to build all these features. Um, and it really taught me that you got to smart, start small. And I, I'm really glad that at the time when I was doing reread two, I was a beginner developer because I didn't really understand kind of what makes a production app, right? A production ready app. And and I think now several years later being a full-time ios developer and i have a lot more opinions a lot more kind of thoughts and i think hesitations about you know is is an app ready for development should it get out to people 
but I didn't have any of that, right? I didn't have any of that stopping me. And so, you know, releasing a simple app that was just a table view, I didn't know that that was like, you know, not maybe not at standard or not the most grandiose thing or I just wanted to get this out there. And I think that naivete actually really helped because um, the first version of Ruby 2, it was so simple. And of course I iterated on it over the years. Um, and that's what I think important. And a lot of times I think we lose some of that. And once we get into, you know, development seriously, we build careers in development. I think we have like, we set such high standards for ourselves of getting an app out there, right? We don't want to get it out there when it, when it's, you know, not, not ready, right? What makes something ready? Um, but being a beginner, I didn't have any of that. And so I was able to launch, launch Ruby 2. The first version, super simple. It's actually funny. The first, the first time I submitted Ruby 2, I got rejected um, because I had, um, what I had did is in the, the table view, right? I went to the detail view and then you could click on the link for, um, for the book and it would, it opened a web view that was Amazon, uh-huh. <laughs> which, which of course is, is not guidelines because you can't, you can't, you could then buy. And then that they were saying you need to implement in app purchasing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so I had to rethink and, and redevelop that, but it, it was a great experience, honestly. And, um, for me, just putting out there as a resource, it, it was really cool being able to develop that app and then see it live in the app store. It sounds a bit like that if you, as a effectively a newbie developer, had known the amount of work it would take to ship this thing, you know, going through app review, going through testing, did a screenshot, yep. da, da, you might have gone, nah. But because you didn't, <laughs> you just plowed on with it and, and it happened and it became awesome, right? Exactly. Um, and I having that, you know, naivete and not knowing what it would take to the work that it would take and just going as I went along, I think that's what I really just, I did incrementally, right? And I learned things incrementally. And so all the work that it took, I didn't realize it until I was finished. Like, oh, wow, that was actually a lot of work. Um, whereas now, like sometimes I get app ideas where I'm like, oh my God, that would take so much work. <laughs> I just don't do it. <laughs> but it's wonderful though, because I, I see folks who are learning Swift and they, they've got an app idea. They want to build this app, which is great because app ideas are obviously the, the nugget of everything we do, right? They've got an app idea and they want to do yep. it, but then they get hung up. They think, I've got to add these features. They, they try and learn that bit. They want to add some more features. They learn that bit. Then they think, well, I've got to design a website. So they try and figure out how to do websites and yep. just cut Too out much. as much as you can. Like go to Squarespace. Yep. Take one of those things. Learn no HTML. Do not try and build it yourself. Let's get up there. The <laughs> simplest thing you can do and ship your app. And actually, Apple gave a talk on yeah. this uh, some years ago now. And they're saying how to use Keynote as a prototyping tool. So it lets you see things working with animations on the screen immediately. Not put in 500 hours of work first, then see it working. It's much nice to see, you know, very, very quick feedback and just iterate more quickly. Exactly. I think starting small is key. Like when you're a starting out indie developer and you want to launch your first app, it doesn't have to be this grandiose thing. It doesn't have to be the best app in the world. It doesn't have to be the most beautifully designed app in the world. I think there is a lot of pressure now um, to, you know, have these amazing looking apps and these amazing features, et cetera. But that you don't always have to start there. You can get there. I think 
And when I look at where we to it is now versus where it was, you know, five years ago, it's it's night and day. But it's been five years. <laughs> it hasn't it hasn't been two months or two weeks, or, you know. And it, it takes time. And I've I've really taken my time with Riri too because um, I think it's it's important to to know like when you're working on side projects. I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure to let it consume you, right? And you're working on it night and day, and it's all you think about and and whatnot. But that really isn't healthy, right? You have to have a well balanced and a well balanced life. You have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and everything. And so there are there are plenty of times where I, I take breaks and I'm not working on Ruby 2 or whatnot, but I make sure that, you know, you want to make sure it's maintained and active, but adding new features and things like that. You don't always have to be adding new things and, and working on working on it every minute. Well, that's a very topical thing to say, actually, because we have a question here from Jamaladeen Belile, who asks, being a full-time developer, how much time do you invest working on your side projects? That's a really good question. And it's something that I've, I've still been learning to try to figure out. Um, I think, you know, a couple of hours per week, and it's a bit different with WeWe too, because um, a couple of hours per week may not be development hours. Um, it may be moder moderating. There's a suggestion feature in the app where users can suggest books to be added to the directory. Mm. And so I have to, I have to look through those myself and like check to see, um, if they're, you know, valid suggestions and then add those and things. And so there's, there's more than just the development aspect when it comes to, to reread too. So it may be a couple hours per week. I think that it just depends on, on your own kind of how much do you work at work and what are your obligations outside of work? What are your hobbies outside of work and things and, and balancing it right. I think when I, when I first started working full time, I definitely didn't know how to kind of balance that out because when you first working full time for the first time, it's trying to learn how to organize and time manage your life is kind of tough. And so I definitely didn't work on Ruby too for like the, the first year that I, the first year or so when I first started working full time. So I think that it, it definitely depends. You have to get your groove. And I think a lot of it is don't putting too much pressure on yourself to feel like you have to be working on your side project all the time. Yeah. I mean, now, presumably, you're at home. <laughs> You've got time on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am at home. It's funny. I um, One of the, the projects that I'm trying to work on for Ruby 2 right now is I had mentioned that I had started out with Parse. And um, a lot of us may know that Parse was bought by Facebook and then Facebook decided to deprecate Parse. Um, and Parse was back end as a service. It was great to use. Um, they had great SDKs. Um, and especially beginning developer, it allowed me to really get started off the ground without understanding server-side development or, you know, how to how to database it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I really, I really loved using it. And then they deprecated it. When they deprecated it, I actually decided to keep using the client side code by running my own parse server. So I was running my own parse server on Heroku and then I migrated the data over to M labs. Um, and now M labs is owned by MongoDB and they're deprecating M labs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, what I'm doing now is I'm actually, I, I'm, I moved over all the data to the cloud kit. And so now I'm actually trying to. <laughs> All right, folks, uh -oh, that that's your advanced warning. Get <laughs> off CloudKit before they kill CloudKit, because Kaya, the, cu <laughs> the curse of Kaya Thomas has come towards CloudKit next. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, so I, I moved over the data to, the, um, to CloudKit, and 
So now I'm, I'm trying to wire that up in the app and figure out how to use it for my Android. Because I do have an Android version of the app as well. Um, not that I developed um, a great Android developer, Julia Nguyen developed the, the Android version, but um, figuring out, making sure I can hook up the Android version to the CloudKit database. And so that's kind of my, my project right now. So a common problem that indie folks hit when working in their side project or even their main indie app is how do they market that app? We haven't got the big budgets of the massive companies, okay. but you've got to reach out and find sales and find users and find an audience starting from zero. What tips do you have for that? Uh, my, my number one tip is Twitter. Honestly, what I did when, when I launched Riwi2 is my main audience, right, for Riwi2 at the time when I was thinking, I was like, okay, my main audience is like parents, librarians, teachers. Um, and so I looked at what the conversations were on Twitter and the different hashtags around education, um, around diversity and literature. Um, and I kind of made lists, like private lists of all the kind of different accounts and things that um, I saw that were having these type of conversations. And I realized that the librarian community was really large on Twitter and they would have really robust conversations. And so when Reread 2 came out, I, I tweeted them. Right. I tweeted them, hey, there's a new app that you might be interested in that came out that I've developed, you know, around diversity and literature. Check it out. And the library community really helped me, you know, get it out there and market it. Um, and then after that, I, I definitely was luckily enough to have some press. So some people caught on that we read too was released and I got some some articles in the pre press, which really helped. But even if you don't have articles in the press, I think what I, what I mentioned here is what is your audience for your app, right? Think about your audience for your app and thinking about kind of what conversations may be happening online about the problem that you're trying to solve with your app and how can you reach those conversations, be a part of those conversations and reach those people who are who could potentially be interested in using your app. And I think reaching out to those people could go a long way because word of mouth surprisingly can go a long way when it comes to, to marketing, especially with indie apps. Right. And actually the app has received a lot of recognition, hasn't it? It's done very, very well for itself. Yeah, I mean, I I could not have imagined where We Read 2 has gone. Um, but in 2018, I was featured in the App Store for the first time. And, and that was an incredible dream come true. You know, as an iOS developer, um, a really, really great experience. And that feature definitely, you know, bumped, bumped it up a lot. And other features that I had on, on different kind of publication sites as well. And I, I really am appreciative and grateful for, for all of the, you know, press and, and highlights that we 2 has gotten. And it's a free resource, right? And it will always be a free resource. And so I'm hoping it can reach as many people as possible so that folks can find these type of books and, and expose young people to these type of books. And, and that's really the point, point of the app. I think it's a bit different, you know, if you're an indie developer and you're making your living off of your apps and your side projects, right? It's definitely going to be a, a bit different, you know, how you approach marketing. You may want to invest more in ads and, and things like that because you're making a living off of this. So it's a bit different for Riri too, but I, I think it can go a long way if you actually reach out to your audience one-on-one -on -one and, and talk to people. I think that's one thing that's really important for us as developers as to do is talk to the people who are using our app. Um, I think it could be easy to make assumptions about what your audience wants or, you know, what they need. Uh, when I first 
re- release we read too, right? I had said that there was only two categories, children and young adult, because that's kind of how my mind perceived those categories. Yeah. And then after talking to librarians and teachers and parents, they were like, actually, no, this is, this is too broad. I actually need you to split out children. I need to know what, what are the picture books? What are the chapter books? What are the middle grade books, right, for the kids of the different ages? But I didn't, I didn't think of that, um, and I wouldn't have known that unless I actually talked to the people who are using the app. Um, and so, making sure you're talking to your audience to see what they really need from you and from the app versus just making those assumptions and talking to them and actually taking their feedback into account can go a long way and really help your app expand even more. Certainly, I found that teachers have. Uh, obviously the remarkable ear to the ground and they're doing this thing every day with kids year in year out often a range of year groups and ages they are the absolute subject matter experts for so many educational apps and they're also super keen to have to support somebody else you know to help out and provide feedback and provide ideas and provide testing and more i've had some wonderful feedback from teachers saying hey have you considered this or, or this or try this or here's some stuff please use it because they are already yeah. obviously working very very hard just just teaching just trying to keep their actual job going and educating these children to the best ability they can to then go and say they also make an, an ipad app or an ios app is is challenging so for folks like you who yeah. can say i'm going to make you uh all those things you need, all those books you wanted, I can put them in this free app. Everyone benefits. I get nothing from it. It's all pro bono. And it's a big win yep. for the whole community. Yeah. Honestly, like I, I think I would love for, you know, iOS developers to get out there and talk to different people in their community just, just besides just developers because you never know how like simple app that may take you a week or two to make really help someone or, uh, you know, help uh, a person in the community, especially if you're a more advanced developer. And if you're a beginner developer, going out in your community and talking to, you know, teachers or librarians or owners or those folks may need the technology. And obviously, like we talked about, they might have the capacity to build up themselves. And so you as a developer, you may be able to help someone out in your community or help a group of people out in your community who could use a resource, a technology resource. And especially as a beginner, it might be able to give you that idea to launch your first app. Mm. So what would you say making We Read 2, but also working at Calm and Slack and more? What do you think it's taught you about making a great side project? What goes into it, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. I think there's a lot, I think, that goes into making a good side project. I think scope is really important so before you jump in to start coding or anything there needs to be a lot of thinking time and you can't neglect that thinking and planning time so you need to take time to think about like i said audience who is this app for who do you want to be using the app you know what are the positive ways you're going to impact the the audience who is using the app and then scope what's the the smallest amount of features that you think would make this a good app smallest amount like not the largest amount so you could list all the features that you would want to build in the future, but realistically scoping, okay, maybe I can start out with two or maybe I can start out with, you know, three max or something. And then thinking about how you can make those features to the best of ability. And then wireframing. You mentioned the keynote. That's a great way to start, right? 
putting things together in keynote and playing around with it and then showing it to people. I think that's that's a scary thing, right? To show your wireframes or things to people, but showing it to people, see what they think, right? Um, and not necessarily taking people's opinions as as everything. You you can take it with a grain of salt, but getting feedback I think is important. And when you're an indie developer and you're especially working solo, um, it can be sometimes a really lonely experience. And, and so you want to make sure that you are asking your friends or other developers what they're thinking, getting feedback, you know, and then start once you figure those things out and you really have thought it all out, then start working on the implementation. And I think if you get that first working MVP, that minimal viable product, then going on like test flight, right? And putting your app on test flight and then asking either friends or other developers to give you feedback on what the uh, beginning experience is like. And then don't try to perfect it before launching it. I think that's the thing is like, it's not going to be perfect. If you have something that's working, you're getting some good feedback, launch it. Just go for it. Just go for it. And, 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 and don't hold back. I think those are kind of the the steps when you're launching. And then once you have launched it, make sure you're being realistic on how much time that you can actually spend on it. And, and so it's not like taking over your life or anything, but you're still, you know, putting in the amount that you feel proud of or, the, or that you feel good about. Um, and then making sure you're still staying and focusing on one or two features at a time and not trying to build all these things at once. So really stay focused on, you know, singular goals, I think is important. Yeah, gosh, there was a lot of packed, information packed in there, but it really sounds like <laughs> getting your MMMMVP initially is critical, but yeah. then, then staying focused on that MVP, iterating chunk by chunk yeah. by chunk is a, is a really key thing here. Yeah, 100%. There's a, a brilliant book, which I expect um, you've read or desperately want to read, uh, The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks, where he talks about the second system effect. And it's the idea that you build version one of something and you make it ship and it gets out the door. And it was hard work, but it shipped eventually. And when it ships, you think, okay, it's time to plan version two. And you think, right, all those things we cut <laughs> everywhere around, every scumbag, yeah. in it goes to version two. And it just ends up being a difficult, yeah. overwhelming overburdening uh, nightmare and of course no one wants that not particularly in a, in a side project exactly exactly i think that the incremental part of it is super important and not trying to do too much at once we've got a, a quick question here from andy alianto before i go on to the next topic um any tips for github as a portfolio because we're always thinking how do i how do i prove my skills for job interviews or to myself or whatever and for us, for many developers, GitHub seems like a natural home for that. I mean, it's that or the App Store, right? So what do you think? Is GitHub a good place yeah. for your portfolio or not? I think it's, it's kind of tough and it's a bit different for us as, as mobile developers. I think that um, it's a it's a bit easier, I think, as a web developer to have GitHub be our portfolio and to contribute to open source. Um, I've, I remember when I was a beginner and I was looking into contributing to open source and a lot of the beginner kind of articles or 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 topics about contributing to open source had nothing to do with mobile or were no mobile projects and so i think it's a bit tougher to have github as your portfolio as a mobile developer and i think definitely having some apps on the app store or one app on the app store usually um is what a lot of 
um, employers look for. So if you look at job descriptions, a lot of times they, they say like experience shipping apps in the app store or has an app in the app store. And so usually I would say that's a bit more important than just having on GitHub. Of course, having a, a, a GitHub profile and even potentially you can you can put a project up on there. Um, I just think that it's a, as mobile developers, it's not as great of a portfolio for us. Okay, that makes sense. So let's park uh, side projects here and move on to the next topic, push notifications. Because you used to work for Slack. And of all the companies in the world, yep. I suspect Slack know more than anybody <laughs> else about push notifications. And I've been to some of your great talks as well. Uh, as Amsterdam last year, in fact, where you're speaking about push. Um, so just summarize for us, how important do you think push messages are for developers? I think push notifications are incredibly important um, for one of the reasons is they do allow you an opportunity to re-engage um, your users. And I think, you know, if someone hasn't visited your app in a long time, potentially a push notification is what reminds them that they even download your app in the first place, right? Or takes them back into your app. The other side of it, besides the engagement part, is it allows you to disseminate important information to your users, right? Without them having to go into your app. Um, and it potentially could allow them to take actions, right, on things um, outside of the app. So without having the burden of opening the app, clicking into stuff, they can potentially do and still interact with your app um, with a push notification. And and so I think those two are are the great things about push notification, the engagement um, aspect and also getting that import, important information to your user and allowing to, them to interact with that information without having to go into your app. Certainly the latter one is critically important for apps that are based around communication, like Slack, like Twitter, like yeah. you know anything like that, anywhere where this has happened right now. The, the news, for example, makes sense. But the re-engagement thing, I think, is dramatically undervalued by our community. And when you see it done well, like an app such as Duolingo, they're saying, hey, come back, hey, come back, hey, come back. <laughs> yeah. and it does end by saying, listen, it's been five days now. You aren't coming back. I'm just going to stop talking to you. They don't, they don't keep on harassing you. Yeah. But it does give that little nudge. Hey, this thing you wanted is still awesome. It's still great. It's still, or it's perfect. It's ready now what you asked for. It's now here. So getting folks back into your app with push or even local notifications is just so important. Yep. Exactly. That re-engagement is really important. And I think what you said is key, done well, because there are definitely apps <laughs> that don't do it well, right? Um, would you, would you name you know, any, Kaya? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But if I get a huge, you know, marketing blast that has nothing to do with, you know, anything I've interacted with in the app or anything that I'm interested in, um, it, it, it's not useful. And, and that can actually lead to people to delete your app. So I think it's also important to be very careful about the type of notifications you send, right? Because if, if you send out a, a large blast to, to all your users that's not necessarily related or individualized to them, they may say, oh, what is this app? I, no, delete, you know, and I've done that personally with apps. Um, and so it's important to be very thoughtful about what type of notifications you're sending. So obviously the App Store rules did just change a week ago, two weeks ago, saying that now yeah. you can use adverts as long as Do the marketing. user can say, yeah. I don't want these things. So it's an opt-in, opt-out relationship, which is huge because 
it was already happening, right? As you said, it was happening no matter what. People saying, yep. you know, Netflix like hits me with push quite a lot saying, there's this new show that you're going to love. And of course, I never actually watch it, but they're marketing to me. Yep. <laughs> so it's happening anyway. But now they're saying, okay, we give up trying to enforce this, but at least make sure you have that user opt-in first, which is huge. Yeah, it is huge. I, I I appreciate them acknowledging that this was something that was already happening, and they obviously weren't enforcing the the guidelines as strictly when it came to notifications. But that user opt-in, I think, is incredibly important. Like having you know granular notification settings. I, I I say this a lot, you know, in my talks and things about notifications. But allowing your user to have the power to control what types of notifications they're receiving is really important. So if you're sending a bunch of notifications, but then you know, I go, I can go into the app and I don't have any notification settings or ability to, to edit them or change them. Um, it, you're, you're really, I think, losing that trust that you have with your user, right? And, and providing them the setting allows them to still receive the notifications, just the ones or types that to that they want to. So you can still have that engagement piece, but then it's personalized and they have the, the power to set their own preferences. So it sounds like it's a major tip there, folks, that if you're going to do push, give folks the chance to say what kind of push interests them to, to customize, to filter. And in some respects, yep. yes, it means they're going to get fewer messages, but they're going to care more about those messages. These are the more. ones that are tailored to me personally, the things I care about. And it might be adverts. Yes, tell me about great sales in my area for hotels. Yeah, It's an advert, but it's something I personally care about. Obviously, not having much right now, but things that I personally act yep. at once on is still an advert, but I, I want it. I want that kind of thing. Tell me now before it gets snapped up by somebody else. So tailoring is is huge. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And, and uh, exactly what you said. It's like if you're able to tailor, people will care more about the notifications. It's, that caring aspect is important and will actually help with that engagement. Because if, if folks are not engaging, like you can track right engagement for your notifications. If they're pushing, if they're if they're clicking on your notification or interacting with it at all, you'll get that callback in your app, right? right? And so you may have like an analytic event or something that you're tracking there. But if if you notice that there's not any engagement with your notifications, figure out why, right? Maybe you need to have more granular or specific settings and allow people to to really show what they're interested in and have notifications around that. Because otherwise, they might not care about the notifications. They may turn off notifications completely for your app. So it's an interesting thing, uh, listeners, is that obviously Kai is very, very good at push. And so she drops things in there that she's like, yeah, I'll just do this thing. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is a really good idea. So let's just backtrack slightly <laughs> there. You just dropped in an absolute yeah. nugget of gold there. When the push goes out to someone's screen, and they interact with it as it's, you know, it launches your app, something happens with your push. If you have analytics, if you're tracking that, track that being used. Because it'll tell you this message was sent to 50,000 and 300 opened it. That's a very, very low open rate. So you can start to yep. think which messages worked well, which ones worked less well. And it takes what, two lines of code to do. I mean, it's, it's easy, right? Exactly. So exactly, exactly. It's not it's not a huge lift uh, for you as a developer, but it'll give you immense value. Yeah. So what do you think makes for a, a, a push message, a notification that makes folks really want to go for it? Not also, hopefully not the, uh, the one weird trick from a doctor in your area <laughs> kind of thing, but what makes for a really good uh, interactable push? 
an interactable push. So um, I think think about you know the simple interactions that you may have on your app. I think it depends on what what type of app you have, right? But we can, for example, use an app, let's say like Instagram or something. And so that's a post-based app, right? Someone makes a post, and let's say you have notifications on for someone's particular Instagram account. Mm. So you click on that notification and you can see the picture. The number one interaction, right? You want to be able to like that picture. You can do it in the app, of course. You can go into the app and, and click like, but you got the notification, so why not why not click like there? You may want to comment real quick, right? Great photo. You can do that from the notification. Again, you can do it in the app, but why stop what you're doing, go into the app? Maybe you're already in another app doing something you can still interact with the notification without having to go into the app. So think about the small, simple interactions that only take, you know, a couple of seconds that happen in your app that you can potentially bring into a notification. And you can easily do that with like, like or comment. Don't over overload the interactions uh, of a notification. I usually think three is a good amount. Um, and then four max, I don't think you should have more than four interactions on a notification. Um, but definitely think about what are some really quick things that people can do. My favorite notifications personally are from um, single sign-on apps like Duo or Okta, where you sign in and they send you a push. And then you verify that right from the push notification, um, just clicking yes or no, right? I love those single sign-on uh, verification apps because it's super simple super easy. I don't have to go into their app. Um, I might be already doing something. I just want to sign in. So that's a really good example of some really useful interactions. Yeah. And again, just stacks of brilliant ideas in what you're saying. So it sounds really much like, yes, of course, we want folks to launch our apps. We want folks to go to our apps and spend time in our app. But the main thing, the main benchmark for us should be, is someone actually interacting with our app somehow? And if that is yeah. likely to be improved, by having those interactions inside the push message, as opposed to in the app, then put in the extra legwork, make that happen, make those push actions exposed with comment boxes or like, whatever you said, because it means they're more likely to reply immediately. And that's the big thing here, right? Yeah, and that's the big thing. It's still engagement. I think, you know, of course, like you said, as app developers, we want people in our app and want them using our app. But don't view them interacting with a push notification or doing actions with a push as not engaging because it is engaging, right? They took the time to, to click on the notification, see what it is, see what actions are there, and then still continue. They, they didn't have to open the notification, right? They could have just deleted the notification. So it did show that they, they care. They have some engagement there. Um, and then there's other ways you can pull them into the app. Um, and there may be something more important, like, for example, a messaging app, if it's a really long message, they probably are going to go into the app to continue and have that conversation. But when you have those short, quick interactions that someone can easily just do from the notification, you're allowing the user, you know, you're, you're trusting them their time, right? You're not taking their time away. Because if, if I'm busy doing something in one app and I get a notification, and I, I oftentimes, because I've worked on notifications for so long, I will, you know, force touch into a notification. And if I don't see any actions and I'm like, great, now I have to stop what I'm doing, going into the app. <laughs> Versus, <laughs> versus if there was a nice quick notification action, I'm like, great, you know, I I can handle this later, but I just want to do a quick reply or something like that. And so you're you're really trusting the user with the time. And if they do engage with the notifications, most likely they're also going to go to your app and engage with it there. Right. 
So we've got some already great ideas about filtering and about monitoring interactions. Those are good ideas to, to do things, but there are also some things that we developers do with notifications that are bad ideas. That actually might feel this is this is a good idea, of course it'll work, but in practice, mm -hmm. you know, decrease user trust or reduce our brand and result in apps being deleted. What do you think are the most common sorts of mistakes folks make when working with notifications? Oh, that's a really good one. I think the one one mistake is when you have your, you know, your app and you, your app first launches and I'm a new user to your app. If you give me the notification prompt within the first like two seconds, I don't even know what your app is yet. Like, I, Give me some time. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I think it's important also to give information on why you want to send me notifications. What type of notifications you know, are you going to be sending me? And Apple allows us as developers to customize that message. So when they get a prompt right, for allowing notifications, you can tell them what type of notifications you're going to send or like why you want to send notifications. So making sure that you actually take the time to put that information in there so that you're making it clear to the user what you're going to be sending them or, or why, right? I want to know why you want to send me notifications. Um, and then I think after, after that, if the user opts into a notification and then you start just bombarding them, right? You just start bombarding them with notifications of all types and kinds. Um, that's not good at all, right? Mm. Being really thoughtful about how often you're sending notifications. So I really like the example you use with Delingo. It's like after five days, they sent you notes or however many days they sent you notifications. They say, hey, this is going to be our last one. We understand that, you know, you may not be interested. So, so thinking about how you can customize your notifications to take into account have they engaged with it? Or when was the last time I sent a notification, right? If you're doing local notifications, you can do that right from the app. When's the last time you send a notification? You keep track of that date. Um, if I send them a notification today, probably shouldn't send them another one, right? <laughs> um, so things like that is making sure that you're really taking that user, when they press allow, they're trusting you not to bombard them, not to, you know, send them notifications every hour or whatever, making sure that you're really being thoughtful about how often you're sending notifications and like what types of notifications. It should be the same type that they agreed to sign up to. Mm. Once again, I want to backtrack here because there's just nuggets flying out left, right and center. <laughs> Let's slow down and go into some more detail here because you've just mentioned a number of awesome things. All right. First up, you know, if you, if you ask for push permission straight away, you're going to just say no. And of course, we all do the same thing because it's, it's, yep. it's, it's a big trust. Yes, please hit me with yep. your spam, is what we're saying, without any further knowledge, right? And we don't yep. want that. And what I've seen done very effectively is um, point of use requests. So the app doesn't ask for push and use it doesn't ask for push, doesn't ask for push. And then a week goes by and you try a feature and it goes, well, this thing needs push. So now let's ask yep. for push. And you're like, okay, I wanted that feature, so I'm going to actively choose push because it, it matters. We actually want push to be enabled for the things we care about. And also I've seen very effectively done is folks having a like a pre-permission screen shown. Listen, you've asked to push to yeah. be shown. This is what this means. Da -da 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 -da. Are you sure? Yes. And then the Apple dialogue appears. Because if you say no to the Apple yep. dialogue, it's basically a block on push. You've missed your chance. Yep. 
If they say no to your dialogue, you can show that again later on when they want X, Y, Z feature. They can then say, now it means push. So both of those, I think, are, are better ways of, of handling push and hopefully increasing push opt-in, which is a big thing, presumably. Yeah, 100%. I think those two are great, really, really, really great examples, especially the having the pre-prompt screen, because if you have your own pre-prompt screen, then you can disseminate as much information as you want, right? Uh, an alert is pretty small, so you, can, you don't want to put all the text. Yeah, you don't want to put all your text into the alert. So if you have a pre-prompt screen, um, that could be really powerful and allow you to really get that information clearly to the user. And then if you are an uh, app that only has notifications for one particular feature, yeah, that is a really great point. Like only then show the prompt when they interact with that feature for the first time. You also mentioned about bombarding the user with messages, which the underlying question there is, I know it's hard to answer, but for, for non-chat-based stuff, how much is too much or how little is too little? Because you don't want the user to forget about you at the same time, but also you don't want yep. to spam them saying, basically, please delete me because that gets you nowhere as well. So what is a sort of a healthy level of push for non-messaging-based app, do you think? I honestly think once per day. I you I don't think a, a app that's like a non-chat app or something should be sending more than one notification per day unless I've opted into that. So for example, like a news app, right? If you're a news app and I have alerts set, send me all you know notifications for this particular topic or if, if there are articles on this thing, send me all the notifications. Okay, there happen to be three articles that day on that topic. Okay, that makes sense for you to send those notifications. But that should only happen if the user has opt opted in. So if you're sending multiple, multiple notifications per day, but they haven't opted in on like setting those preferences, I don't think you should do that, right? You can send one notification and then maybe, and in that notification, you could say something like, if you like to receive more like this, go to your, your notification settings or something like that. You don't need to send them more than one per day if you're, if you're not an app like a chat based or something like that, um, unless they've opted into it. Once again, amazing nuggets being just blasted out there. When they respond to your pushes, <laughs> if they find one, this one, they like this one, they open this one. At that point, you can say, hey, do you want more like this? So you can scale up to the, do they find the point that works for them rather than the sort of, you know, uh, releasing the hose of push messages all over them and then making yeah. them shut down your <laughs> app or, or even worse, delete your app. Yep. Exactly. It's always better to scale up and, and allow them the power to opt in because people are more likely to, you know, feel like, oh, wow, like I like, you know, I like this. They're asking me, you know, they're asking my permission, right? Versus if you just go ahead and bombard, they're like, what the heck? I didn't say I wanted this. Yeah. One thing I would throw in here for folks who are listening uh, is a, a lovely thing you can do is you can detect whether push is enabled or not. So they said no to you previously. You can say, um, this folks, by the way, you've got push turned off, which means we can't tell you about amazing offers in your area, whatever it is you're actually trying to push them with. Yep. You can set that afterwards. So you haven't got to do everything all up front. You can later on say, oops, push disabled. So you're missing out on great news about soccer, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Let's park notifications and go on to our final, hopefully much easier topic. Um, let's talk about... Um, <laughs> The, the the experience you have of working with big companies because um, both Slack and Calm are, are a good size. Slack's obviously a very big company now. Uh, and 
getting into there with the portfolio, the interview process, how they handle organization, how they handle code review. You must have learned so much over these years. Yeah, I really, really have. And I would say, you know, working at by yourself as an indie developer, even if you you have like someone else you work with on an app, it's a very different experience doing indie and then working full time, you know, on a production app that has millions of users and things. Um, I think as indie developers, it'd be great if our app has millions of users, but most of the time we usually don't. So <laughs> it, it's a very kind of different scale, um, especially when you're working with a team, developing an app with you know, 10 people with 20 people with 30 people, etc., is very different than working on it solo or just with another person. So can you speak to sort of the interviewing process you went through for either Slack or Calm, what it was like, how you prepared for it, how well you did? Yeah, I, that's a great question. So I think that as mobile developers, the nice thing is because we have this niche, a lot of times, at least in my experience, companies will actually ask me about mobile development um, rather than just, you know, whiteboarding and algorithms. Um, and maybe it's just the companies that I've happened to interview. But with, with Slack, for example, uh, when I was there and then when, when I joined later, I helped work on the, the interview process as well, is we really focused on app development. So iOS, you know, architecture, UI design, and how do you build apps? You know, how do apps interact with a server and how do you interact with APIs? And these things that, you know, everyday app developers, we are asking these questions and solving these problems already. So it's a lot of it shouldn't come as a surprise. So luckily at Slack, the, the interview process wasn't whiteboarding and how do you solve this red, black tree or anything like that? Um, and I, I honestly personally believe that those type of those type of interviews are really not useful. Um, I, I I really don't like when um, companies really hone in on those algorithmic algorithmic whiteboard interviews because really the signal that that gives you is this person read cracking the coding interview five times or this person really studied hard, um, you know, reading those algorithms um, textbooks and. Is that really a signal that will tell you that someone's going to be a great mobile developer and they're going to be a great addition to your team? They're going to be a great teammate, a great communicator. It's like, what signal are you really getting from that? And I think when you're designing an interview process or even when you're an interviewee, I think the thing to think and realize is you're also interviewing the company. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they're, if they're only doing whiteboard interviews and they're not really asking you questions about mobile development or really trying to get the the understand what your skill level is is that really a company you want to work for is you know and and i think that a lot of people don't ask those questions for themselves or and, and realize that they're interviewing the company as well so if you're having a terrible interview process that says a lot about that company you probably don't want to work there um so my my interview process with slack was was great um they definitely focused a lot on the mobile development side and making sure that I had the skills for the actual role that I was going to be doing. And similarly at Calm. And so at Calm, the, the interview process was focused on mobile development, also focused on you know, team communication, focused on working with product managers and designers. So I was interviewed by product managers and designers, talked about how I, I like to collaborate with product managers and designers, um, right? Because when you're working full time, for you know, a small company, large company, or what have you, uh, a lot of your job is 
collaborating and working with other people. So it's not just working with other developers. You're going to be working with product managers, designers, engineering managers. And so a lot of the interview process there was was talking about how you communicate and collaborate with those people as well. Yeah, I think you've really hit the nail right on the head there. When you are going through one of those grim technical whiteboard interviews, if that's how they hire, the instant message is everyone else who works at this company passed that test. That's the kind of thing they think is appropriate yep. for hiring people. Do you want to work with that kind of company? So it's it's absolutely yep. a, a two-way interview. If you get a, a careful, hands-on, practical, thoughtful interview that goes beyond just binary trees or whatever it is they're honing in on, that is a much more important sign for me. This is a good company to work for. Yep, I agree. So we've got a question here. Well, it's more a, a statement, really. It's a, it's a difficult one, really. Um, from Jerry on Joy. Can you talk about diversity and inclusion in the workspace? Um, obviously, you are uh, fairly young. Uh, you are black and you're female. Um, so as a, like a Venn diagram goes, um, you are very <laughs> well placed to speak about diversity and inclusion, particularly because, of course, your work on Weary 2. Um, how have you found that in your yeah. area? Because you, you're also in the Bay Area, so presumably there's an intense hiring uh, uh, competition and hope, I'd like to think, hopefully, a more inclusive hiring environment. Perhaps you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that's that. You know, that's a really you know meaty question. I think when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the workplace, especially when it comes to interviewing, I think the the hardest thing about um, when you're interviewing, especially when you are a person from you know underrepresented background, is a lot of times that interview will give you signal right to whether it's a welcoming place or not and so um luckily i've had i have i've had good interview experiences but i definitely have friends who have spoken to um companies and interviewed where they haven't been respected because they were a woman or because you know they were from another background and they felt you know like the person didn't take them seriously or um didn't really think that they had the knowledge and and things like that. And so that definitely happens. And it's really unfortunate. And I've also heard on the flip side where you got to think if you're not a person from um, a diverse background, and you are an interviewee, um, and the person interviewing you is from a different you know, background or underrepresented, how are you treating them? Because I've also talked to folks who um, are the interviewers, like, for example, women who have been in an interview room, and the person they're interviewing is not looking them in the eye or is only talking to the the male engineer and, and not really talking to them or um so i think being mindful of like how your own biases can come up when you're when you're interviewing but it, it it's definitely i think when it when it comes to interviewing and looking for positions and things i think companies are definitely great and and all, most of the time making sure that they say hey this is a position open up for all types of people from diverse backgrounds and we would love candidates from underrepresented underrepresented backgrounds which i really um appreciate i think also sometimes job recs can be really um really intimidating right you look at a job rec and it's like 15 years of experience in swift ui <laughs> and it's like wait i don't have that and Nobody has that, right? But I've already seen job reps that have the Swift UI, like Swift UI and combine. And it's like, wait, <laughs> really? Um, and so when you're applying to job and job, um, jobs, even whether you're from an underrepresented background or not, realize that 
you don't need to have 100% of the criteria to apply for the job. And a lot of times research shows that especially folks from underrepresented backgrounds oftentimes won't apply to a job if they feel like they don't meet like everything on the criteria. It's like, don't hold back. If you have like 60% of what's there, apply because you never know. Like they might see the potential in you. You might still get that interview call and then end up getting the job. And there are a lot of stories like that. And so don't let a job rec just completely intimidate you if you feel like you don't have every single thing on on there. I'm going to ask you to pause again so we can start to unpack what you've said because there's so much in <laughs> in that. Um, I want to go back to this um, interview uh, interviewee relationship because um, yeah, it's it's really really hard. As I mean, I, I I'm a well off educated white man. Western country, uh, straight, right? I, 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 I don't uh, think about myself in any way as being any part of under-indexed groups. I'm just not, right? And it's so easy, I think, for someone in my position to not even recognise the problem exists because we look around and we just see, hey, there's some, there's some developers, and we don't see that they're all male. It doesn't, it's not even, it doesn't even register on our radar that they're yeah. male. They're just people. They're just people over there. And I've never had yeah. that environment where I've walked into an interview room and been faced with just a wall of men sort of frowning at me saying, there's the whiteboard, get to it. And in- interviews are horrible anyway. They're stressful anyway because you want the job. That's why yeah. you're there. And then to have uh, this extra feeling that, th- that they are uh, different to you or, or a group without you or is this what the whole company's like? I can't even imagine that extra anxiety or stress that brings with it. Yeah, it does. It does bring a lot of stress um, and anxiety and sometimes that imposter syndrome where you feel like, wait, I probably shouldn't be here or I'm not qualified. Um, I've definitely had tons of moments like that. Um, I think one one of the things that really, you know, helped me is like public speaking because the first time I did like my really first technical talk um, was a couple of years ago and the conference itself was was not really that diverse in terms of the audience and the other speakers. And so I was super nervous, right? I was like, I'm, I'm going up here and I'm saying these things. Are they going to think I'm credible? Are, is anything I'm going to say, are they going to care? Or, you know, is anybody going to even show up to the talk? And, um, I definitely had a lot of those nerves and, and public speaking and, and really getting involved with the mobile community has helped me realize that, you know, my thoughts are valuable. My opinions are valuable. I definitely do have the knowledge. Um, you know, I'm a good iOS developer and all these things. And because like you said, like when you are in spaces where you're, you know, no one's really like you, it can be really intimidating and you can really doubt yourself. And so just reminding yourself that one thing I would say is like, personally, I really think the iOS community, uh, for the most part, like we really do care and we want to lift each other up and we want to help each other. And, so I've, I've loved being a part of this community because I've, I've felt so welcomed and I feel that people have really, you know, I've learned and grown so much from everyone. Um, and I, I feel honored that people feel like there's a lot they can learn from me. And so it, it's a great community, I think, to be a part of. And don't be, a, no matter what your background is, like, don't be afraid to reach out um, to people because there are so many people who are willing to mentor and help like you, Paul, right? You do a lot of mentorship and you work with a lot of people from, you know, underrepresented backgrounds and help them understand learn swift and that is important right that more people are doing things like that because that goes a huge long way a, a, a personal question for you this because 
one thing I struggle with is when I want to really promote what our community looks like. Like when I want to do something like Swift for Good, this is what our community looks like, a really broad range of people from various countries, various backgrounds, all sorts of things. Or when I want to invite speakers to my conference, I want to make sure they represent what our community is and what it should be. And the nature of the beast is that I talk to the same 20 or 30 people that I know are excellent. I've seen them talk. I'm friends with them. We hang out, whatever. That I, I can, I know I can rely on because obviously a lot of risk in these things. I don't want to have a, necessarily a, a wild yeah. card in there. This must carry with it on, on your side of things an extra weight because not only are you massively underrepresented proportionally in our community, and therefore I expect feel perhaps you've got to aim higher than everyone else because you've got to prove you've got to represent a, a lot of people who aren't there. But also you're being asked to write books and do talks and more and and, <laughs> and and you work with Black Girls Code and you do work there. And it's like there's, you're doing way more than anyone could realistically be asked to do. That must be awfully hard for you. It is a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. And um, that's the reality of it. I feel that once you are, you know, one of the few who get in the door um, and are able to build success, like you said, like you then become that representation. And then there is an expectation then that you are doing all of this stuff, right? You are, you know, being super visible in the community, writing blogs, writing books, yeah. speaking. And it is definitely, I would say, a lot of a lot of pressure um, sometimes. And um, it's hard. But I think for me, I think it's still important to make sure that, you know, I do want to be a a good role model. I, I do want to to show people from all different backgrounds that they can, you know, learn how to code, that they can build careers in technology and things. And I do want to make the industry better than um, it is. You know, then eventually one day when you know I'm I'm not in the industry anymore or I've retired or something, I would hope that it would be a better industry, right? Than I than I came into because I want it to be better for the folks that I'm hope hopefully bringing in and. It, it, it is definitely pressure and I, I think that's something that I'm still learning how to how to grapple with and and deal with but I think that the only thing that can alleviate that pressure is if we continue to make you know the community more welcoming more diverse more inclusive so that no one feels like the pressure that they have to be the representation of of you know whatever the identity is and, and that we have people from you know so many different backgrounds and everything that that it's a bit better there. I'm not sure whether you saw um, Pixar's movie, a mini movie, um, Pearl, about the ball of thread. Yes, yes. And when she turned herself into, she kind of yeah, so acclimated and yeah. changed so herself to So to summarize for be, folks who haven't seen yeah. the, the little movie, um, it's a, a, a ball of, of wool joins a, a company and no one looks like her. They all behave differently. They all ignore her. And so she changed herself into one of them. Uh, and becomes she fits in and they think she's brilliant and then another ball of wool joins the company and she takes pot at the ball of wool to, you know try and conform and then realizes what's happened to her she's lost where she came from she lost that she was one of those people and realized her mistake and, and of course yeah. transformed it it's, it's it's really short but amazingly well done it's yeah. it's it's one of those things that yeah it it's it, difficult for some folks to talk about because they don't they don't they want to think it's all roses and it really isn't roses but by taking it out of there and saying hey yeah. it, it's a ball of wool we can all talk about that and 
you know, comfortably talk about it and address yeah. that problem and hopefully bring it back into our own workplaces. Yeah, I love I love that short film. I, I definitely recommend everyone giving it a, a, a watch because it's not it's really short and it says a lot in, in that mo- amount of time. One of the other things you said uh, in your massive nugget onslaught that you had with this onslaught of stuff, because <laughs> um, you, you're throwing out so many things at the same, same time, you mentioned that um, often when a job uh, comes up and it's full of, you know, 15 years, 50 or whatever it is, da, 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 um, it's extremely common for women particularly to say, I don't have all those things, therefore I won't apply. Whereas statistically, men are more likely to say, I have a handful of those things, even missing some of the required things, I will still apply. And in the same way that I said to you earlier that it's very easy for uh, uh, men to walk around conference thinking this is just normal, it's just these people are not just men, they're just people. Um, I don't, re- mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder whether to what extent women realize how much men do this. Like the, the thing about job stuff, because, you know, I do uh, podcasts, I do conferences, I do interviews and books and stuff. And I can tell you, I can tell all women listening, uh, I get exclusively cold call requests from men. Can I contribute to your book? Can mm. I speak at a conference? Can I whatever, 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 whatever? They were <laughs> always from men. They don't wait to be asked. They will aggressively, well, not aggressively, they'll go, they'll go on cold yeah. call or, or, or ask out of the blue, can I take part in this thing without having been asked themselves? Whereas yeah. mostly women seem to wait to be invited, in my experience, which is limited. And I wish more women knew that, that men really are saying, hey, I, can I be on, I've had people already, I've done this, yeah. this is like episode four of Swiftly Speaking. I've already had three <laughs> men say, can I be on Swiftly Speaking, please? <laughs> and zero women, you know, because it is just so common. And it's it, even though it's brand new, they just yeah. put themselves, we all do it, put ourselves forward. And I don't know whether the solution is men, relax, chill out, let everyone have some space here, or <laughs> women be pushier. I mean, I don't know. Both seem bad. I, I can't tell which one's the worst of the two, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, you know, whoever is, is responsible for, you know, giving out those opportunities, which you're already doing, right? But whoever is responsible, whether you're a conference organizer or, you know, you're a podcast host, et cetera, is making sure that you're inviting people from all different types of backgrounds and things versus, because like you said, the people who will ask you may not be from all different types of backgrounds, but you have the onus to choose who you bring on your show, who you who you invite to speak at your conference and et cetera. So I think that the onus is definitely on the people who are providing those opportunities, whether it's the employer or what have you, and like making sure that you are getting a diverse pool of people. Because unfortunately, I just don't think, like you said, either way is not great. Like we don't want to tell, specifically like in this case, right? we don't want to tell men like, oh, stop going for opportunities, like be less confident. And we don't want to tell women, like, you know, make sure you're being super aggressive and, like, pushy. And, like, because that is also, there's a lot of perceptions there. So we want to make sure that whoever is responsible for giving those opportunities is doing the work, right? They're putting in that work to have a diverse pool. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, folks, if you uh, go to conferences or listen to podcasts or go to websites whatever, and they have only male speakers or one in tens male or whatever it is, you are voting with your feet. You know, you're, you're giving them support mm-hmm. and money and presence and space 
and you're kind of encouraging where we are right now. So please do vote with your feet and say, listen, uh, I'm not going to go to this conference, podcast, whatever it is anymore, because it's just not where I want our community to be, or even even vaguely reflective of where it actually is today. Definitely. Well, listen, Kaya, um, it's been an hour and a half now. Thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely <laughs> talking to you. I suspect everyone listening to this is going to go back and listen to it again to catch all the nuggets I didn't have, <laughs> even have time to dig into because there were so many just flying out. Um, but there's, that's, that's great. It's va- maximum value for time. Uh, listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please do hit like on YouTube. It helps YouTube recommend this thing to other listeners and helps us get a a wider audience in the future. Uh, And Kaya, again, thank you for coming on. You've been a a wonderful guest. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Paul. This This has been a blast. Thank you so much to everyone who asked questions. It's been really awesome having you here. We'll see you in a few days with episode five. Take care, folks. Bye.